Section 98. Introduction. The antagonism toward the church was not only increasing in Missouri, but also in the Kirtland region. Much of the increased tension in Kirtland was due to the fact that the church had recently purchased three large farms and invited the Ohio saints to gather on these lands so a new stake could be organized and a temple built. As we mentioned earlier, the large migration of saints from Ohio to Missouri had left Kirtland with only about 150 families. However, the prospect of a temple in the new stake was like a magnet. Before long, there were 1,500 people congregated in this new settlement. Of course, Joseph was alarmed by the widespread reports of violence in Missouri, and he wondered if the mobs in Ohio might be equally savage. No doubt these worries lay heavily upon the heart of Joseph as he approached the Lord on August the 6th, 1833, and received the following revelation as a result. Verily I say unto you, my friends, fear not. Let your hearts be comforted. Yea, rejoice evermore, and in everything give thanks. Waiting patiently on the Lord... For your prayers have entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth and are recorded with this seal and testament. The Lord hath sworn and decreed that they shall be granted. These first two verses must have been a great comfort to Joseph and his associates. The Lord had heard their prayers and their petitions will be granted. Therefore he giveth this promise unto you, with an immutable covenant that they shall be fulfilled. And all things wherewith you have been afflicted shall work together for your good and to my name's glory, saith the Lord. Not only will the saints be allowed to build their temple, but even the afflictions through which they passed will work together for their good and the upbuilding of the kingdom. And now... Verily I say unto you concerning the laws of the land, it is my will that my people should observe to do all things whatsoever I command them. Now we come to the problem of lawlessness, which seemed to leave the members of the church with very little protection, either under the Constitution or by the laws of the state. The Lord wanted the saints to press forward in terms of God's latest commands, no matter what the lawless element in the state may decree. And that law of the land which is constitutional, supporting that principle of freedom in maintaining rights and privileges, belongs to all mankind and is justifiable before me. Furthermore, the saints are to respect the constitutional law of the land on which the principle of freedom has been established. It is only under the banner of freedom that the rights and the privileges of all mankind are justified by God. Therefore I, the Lord, justify you and your brethren of my church in befriending that law which is the constitutional law of the land. For this reason the Lord justifies the saints when they befriend the Constitution and the laws which have been decreed under its provisions. And as pertaining to law of man, whatsoever is more or less than this cometh of evil. The Lord makes it clear that if the federal government or any state attempts to operate outside or in violation of the Constitution, it will bring down the forces of evil on the heads of the people. I, the Lord God, make you free 
Therefore ye are free indeed, and the law also maketh you free. The Lord now pronounces an inalienable right of the people to be free, just as Thomas Jefferson wrote it in the Declaration of Independence. Nevertheless, when the wicked rule, the people mourn. But the inclination of wicked men to grind down the people and rob them of their liberty can only result in abuse and sorrow. Therefore, when the wicked rule, the people mourn. Now at this point, the Lord is going to describe the key to righteous government. To appreciate what he is going to say, we have to remind ourselves that the Constitution provided for a democratic republic. Democracy means, quote, mass participation of the people, unquote. And the Greeks found out that this is disastrous when the whole people try to manage the affairs of government on a day-to-day basis. Therefore, the masses of the people elect their representatives or leaders, but leave the decision-making and administration of the government on a day-to-day basis up to those elected officials. Running the government through elected representatives rather than the masses of the people is what makes the nation a republic. So this is why Thomas Jefferson called his party the Democratic-Republican Party. He wanted to have righteous people elected by the masses of the people as their representatives and then hold these representatives responsible for giving the people an efficient administration of government as provided by the Constitution. He would have hardly approved of this next verse wherein the Lord says, Wherefore, honest men and wise men should be sought for diligently, and good men and wise men ye should observe to uphold. Otherwise, whatsoever is less than these cometh of evil. The Lord wanted the members of the church to distinguish between wise, competent, good men and refrain from supporting those who lack these qualities. Otherwise, the results would be evil. And I give unto you a commandment, that ye shall forsake all evil and cleave unto all good, that ye shall live by every word which proceedeth forth out of the mouth of God. In this verse, the Lord provides a measurement by which the saints can distinguish between righteous qualified representatives and the candidates the people should not support. A fundamental requirement should be that a candidate's personal life reflects obedience to God's commandments. For he will give unto the faithful line upon line, precept upon precept, and I will try you and prove you herewith. Elected representatives who are humble and righteous will be inspired by the Lord to make their decisions based on sound principles, which the Lord has revealed line upon line and precept upon precept. The Lord says that from time to time he is going to test the people to see if they are endeavoring to follow these precepts. And whoso layeth down his life in my cause, for my name's sake, shall find it again, even life eternal. The Lord wants government leaders to be like the great King Benjamin in the Book of Mormon. He was one of the greatest examples of ideal political leadership in the annals of world history. This is described in Mosiah, chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. The very essence of King Benjamin's life was to serve his people because he felt that by serving them, he was serving God. 
The Lord says that any public servant who is willing to lay down his life or give his life in the struggle by day and by night to provide righteous government will inherit eternal life. When the Lord says, quote, blessed is the man who lays down his life for his friends, unquote, we usually call to mind the soldier who sacrifices his life on the field of battle. But here the Lord is saying that it is just as heroic to labor by day and by night to sustain the cause of freedom through efficient public service and the rendering of righteous decisions, whether they accord with the current public clamor or not. Keeping King Benjamin in mind as an example of superb leadership, consider the following. Therefore, be not afraid of your enemies. For I have decreed in my heart, saith the Lord, that I will prove you in all things, whether you will abide in my covenant, even unto death, that you may be found worthy. It may be recalled that King Benjamin offered the sacrifice of his life on the battlefield many times, but the Lord allowed him to survive that he might expend his life in righteous service. In the same sense, the Lord is going to prove his servants in the latter days. He will prove them to see if they fulfill their sacred covenants and service, and if necessary, even unto death. For if ye will not abide in my covenant, ye are not worthy of me. One of the sad aspects of early church history is the number of notable individuals who failed to conform to the example of either King Benjamin or Joseph Smith. Nevertheless, for those who aspire to be valiant in the eyes of God, here is his advice. Therefore, renounce war and proclaim peace, and seek diligently to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers, and the hearts of the fathers to the children. It is amazing how eager the Lord was to keep the focus on the salvation for the dead in the latter days. One of the principal reasons the Lord was so desperately anxious to begin the building of the temple was so the ordinances could be restored and the multitudes of those who died without the gospel could be redeemed through vicarious ceremonies. Notice that it was not until the Cold War was over that we had the peace and prosperity necessary to finish the first hundred temples. In Kirtland and Jackson County, the Lord was struggling to get the first two temples built. Only one became a reality until the last days of Nauvoo in 1846. And again, the hearts of the Jews unto the prophets, and the prophets unto the Jews, lest I come and smite the whole earth with a curse, and all flesh be consumed before me. The vicarious opportunity for salvation for the dead must be extended to all of God's children, and eventually it will include the Jews. But that will not happen until the Jews have accepted Jesus Christ and also the fullness of the gospel as taught by their ancient prophets. Jesus concludes by describing the consequences throughout the earth if this work is not faithfully performed. Let not your hearts be troubled, for in my Father's house are many mansions, and I have prepared a place for you, and where my Father and I am, there ye shall be also. Because there are those who would hinder the work of the Lord, Jesus says the righteous need not be troubled. 
if they are diligently trying to perform their labor in the kingdom so as to magnify the principles of the gospel, they may be assured that there is a mansion in heaven awaiting them. But once the Lord has said this, we are amazed with what he says in the next verse. Behold, I, the Lord, am not well pleased with many who are in the church at Kirtland, for they do not forsake their sins and their wicked ways, the pride of their hearts and their covetousness, and all their detestable things, and observe the words of wisdom and eternal life which I have given unto them. This is astonishing. Here the Lord is passing a severe judgment on the very people Joseph Smith is compelled to rely upon to perform the majestic ministry for the Father in this last dispensation. Verily I say unto you, that I the Lord will chasten them and will do whatsoever I list, if they do not repent and observe all things whatsoever I have said unto them. Now the Lord pronounces a warning for the saints in Kirtland that is almost as severe as the scalding he predicted for the saints in Missouri if they did not build their temple and repent of their sinful lives. It will not be until we reach section 101 that the Lord will itemize the sins of the saints in Missouri and explain why they were driven out of Jackson County. And again I say unto you, If ye observe to do whatsoever I command you, I, the Lord, will turn away all wrath and indignation from you, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Of course, an amazing thing about the Savior is the rapidity with which he can forgive sins and turn away his wrath the moment the people repent. Now I speak unto you concerning your families. If men will smite you or your families once, and ye bear it patiently and revile not against them, neither seek revenge, ye shall be rewarded. Now the Lord says he wants to turn to another subject. The saints were inclined to feel that if they were persecuted, they could endure it, but they did not want their wives and children to suffer. Of course, neither does the Lord, but he has a series of rules by which he deals with those who persecute the families of the saints. First of all, however, as the Lord will point out later, justice requires that when a person or his family have suffered injury, the man or his family have a right to be avenged. This is God's law of justice, which was given to Moses. But even though the right of remedial justice exists and can be demanded by the injured party, here is what the Lord says, quote, If man will smite you or your families once, and ye bear it patiently and revile not against them, neither seek revenge, he shall be rewarded, unquote. Here the Lord is saying that if an injured person does not demand to be avenged of a wrong, he will get a special blessing for it. This really tells us something about the nature of our Heavenly Father. But if ye bear it not patiently, it shall be accounted unto you as being meted out as a just measure unto you. But as we mentioned a moment ago, If the offended party wants to exercise his right under the law of justice and be avenged for the wrong, the Lord says he is entitled to do this, and it will not be counted against him. And again, if your enemy shall smite you the second time, 
and you revile not against your enemy, and bear it patiently, your reward shall be an hundredfold. Nevertheless, if your enemy shall smite you the second time, and you revile not against your enemy, and bear it patiently, your reward shall be an hundredfold. Unquote. Obviously, the Lord is trying to tell us something. If a person will endure further abuse without retaliation, the Lord considers this a heroic gesture in the interest of peace. And again, if he shall smite you the third time, and ye bear it patiently, your reward shall be doubled unto you fourfold. And if your enemy smite you a third time, and you bear it patiently, quote, your reward shall be doubled unto you fourfold, unquote. Now, does this mean one hundred fourfold? This is not entirely clear, but it certainly means that the Lord will sumptuously reward his disciples who exhibit such marvelous forbearance. And these three testimonies shall stand against your enemy, if he repent not, and shall not be blotted out. These three evil acts against a man and his family are enough to make it so malignant that the offender cannot be forgiven. Or, as the scripture says, quote, If he repent not, it shall not be blotted out. Unquote. Does this mean he has gone beyond the point of no return and cannot be forgiven, even if he repents? This seems to be the implication. And now verily I say unto you, If that enemy shall escape my vengeance, that he be not brought into judgment before me, then ye shall see to it that ye warn him in my name, that he come no more upon you, neither upon your family, even your children's children, unto the third and fourth generation. Now if a person who has been abused this many times cannot observe the Lord intervening to avenge him, then he shall warn the offender in the name of the Lord, that he will suffer the anger of God unto the third and fourth generation. And then if he shall come upon you or your children, or your children's children unto the third and fourth generation, I have delivered thine enemy into thine hands. Finally, if he ignores the warning and abuses the victim yet another time, the Lord will deliver the offender over to his victim for full and appropriate punishment. And then if thou wilt spare him, thou shalt be rewarded for thy righteousness, and also thy children and thy children's children unto the third and fourth generation. But if in spite of this the long-suffering victim is still willing to spare his offender, the victim will be rewarded by the Lord for his righteousness, and his descendants will receive God's special blessing to the third and fourth generations. It is absolutely amazing how far the Savior is willing to go to induce his disciples to let multiple wrongs remain unavenged. Nevertheless, thine enemy is in thine hands, and if thou rewardest him according to his works, thou art justified. If he has sought thy life, and thy life is endangered by him, thine enemy is in thine hands, and thou art justified. Now the Lord enunciate, as he did from the beginning, that the law makes allowance for an avenging of a wrong. Furthermore, if his own life or that of his family is put in jeopardy, 
the offender can be killed immediately under the legal justification of self-defense. Behold, this is the law I gave unto my servant Nephi, and thy fathers Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, and all mine ancient prophets and apostles. The Lord did not want Joseph to think that this law of tolerating offenses was anything new. It was given in this exact form to all of the ancient patriarchs and also to Nephi. Of course, there is no example in history comparable to that of the anti-Nephi-Lehites. When they were converted and realized how much innocent blood they had shed, they vowed to allow themselves to be slain by the thousands rather than shed any more blood themselves regardless of the circumstances. And again, this is the law that I gave unto mine ancients, that they should not go out unto battle against any nation, kindred, tongue, or people, save I the Lord commanded them. The Lord also reiterates his ancient command that the priesthood leaders of the ancient Israelites were never to wage war unless it was commanded by God. And if any nation, tongue, or people should proclaim war against them, they should first lift a standard of peace unto that people, nation, or tongue. It was also a commandment that if any nation should threaten war against the Israelites, their first duty was to lift up a standard of peace and seek to negotiate an armistice. And if that people did not accept the offering of peace, neither the second nor the third time, they should bring these testimonies before the Lord. And if the aggressive nation rejects this gesture of peace, the Israelites were to try again and again. But after the third attempt, if the enemy was still adamant and determined to declare war, the Israelites were to bring their history of these peace negotiations before the Lord. Then I, the Lord, would give unto them a commandment and justify them in going out to battle against that nation, tongue, or people. The Lord would then determine if they were justified in going to war, and if he felt there was no alternative, he would command them to proceed into battle. And I, the Lord, would fight their battles, and their children's battles, and their children's children's, until they had avenged themselves on all their enemies to the third and fourth generation. There was a great blessing to be derived from following the Lord's procedure and earnestly seeking peace. Behold, this is an ensample unto all people, saith the Lord your God, for justification before me. What the Lord has outlined in this revelation is the pattern the saints must always follow if they want to be justified before their Savior. And again, verily I say unto you, if after thine enemy has come upon thee the first time, he repent and come unto thee praying thy forgiveness, thou shalt forgive him, and shalt hold it no more as a testimony against thine enemy. Now the Lord returns to the earlier situation where the offender makes his first attack against a man and his family. Jesus said that if the offender comes begging to be forgiven, there is an obligation on the part of the Lord's servant to forgive him. And so on unto the second and third time. And as oft as thine enemy repenteth of the trespass wherewith he has trespassed against thee, thou shalt forgive him 
until 70 times 7. If at any stage of the offender's wrongdoings he comes to his senses and asks to be forgiven, a disciple of Christ will freely forgive. It will be recalled that this happened to Nephi several times when his brethren were going to slay him or leave him bound on the desert to be eaten by wild beasts. In each of these cases, the Lord intervened to cause the brothers to repent and plead to be forgiven. In each instance, Nephi accepted their pleas and forgave them freely. When Jesus was asked how many times a wicked person should be forgiven if he says he is trying to repent, the Lord said that he should be forgiven, quote, until seventy times seven, unquote. And if he trespass against thee and repent not the first time, nevertheless thou shalt forgive him. And if he trespass against thee the second time and repent not, Nevertheless, thou shalt forgive him. And if he trespass against thee the third time, and repent not, thou shalt also forgive him. But what if the offender does not repent? The Lord's rule is to forgive him anyway, but only for three times. But if he trespass against thee the fourth time, thou shalt not forgive him, but shalt bring these testimonies before the Lord and they shall not be blotted out until he repent and reward thee fourfold in all things wherewith he has trespassed against thee. But now comes the surprise. If he trespasses the fourth time, he shall not be forgiven. This time the victim shall bring each of these three testimonies before the Lord, and they shall not be blotted out but rather the offender will be punished four times greater than a single offense would have entailed. And if he do this, thou shalt forgive him with all thine heart. And if he do not this, I, the Lord, will avenge thee of thine enemy an hundredfold. Nevertheless, if the offender repents after being punished, he shall be forgiven. But if he still refuses to repent, the Lord will punish him a hundredfold and upon his children, and upon his children's children, of all them that hate me, unto the third and fourth generation. Not only will the wicked man be punished, but also his children down to the third and fourth generations. This is often thought to mean that he will be given inferior spirit for his children down to the third and fourth generation. But if the children shall repent, or the children's children, and turn to the Lord their God, with all their hearts and with all their might, mind, and strength, and restore fourfold for all their trespasses wherewith they have trespassed, or wherewith their fathers have trespassed, or their fathers' fathers, then thine indignation shall be turned away. Now, in case the descendants of the original offender repent with all their hearts and restore fourfold to the afflicted family that which was taken by their wicked ancestors, then these descendants of the original offender shall be forgiven. And vengeance shall no more come upon them, saith the Lord thy God. And their trespasses shall never be brought any more as a testimony before the Lord against them. Amen. These descendants will no longer be punished for the trespasses of their family, 
nor will the accusations against them for past offenses be brought up to humiliate them. Section 99, Introduction Sometime in the month of August, 1833, the Lord gave a special revelation to John Murdoch, one of his most faithful servants. He was converted in Kirtland by Oliver Cowdery and the missionaries when they were on their way to preach the gospel to the Lamanites. He was immediately ordained to the priesthood and called to proclaim the gospel. It will be recalled that John's wife died while giving birth to twins. On the same night, Joseph's wife lost her twins. The date was April the 30th, 1831. Grief-stricken John Murdoch, who had several other children, asked Joseph and Emma to adopt his little twins to replace the ones Emma had lost. Joseph and Emma did so. However, not long afterwards, one of the twins, a little boy, died at the age of 11 months from exposure when a mob raided the home of John Johnson where Joseph and Emma were staying. Later, when Joseph and Emma moved back to Kirtland, they took the remaining twin, a little girl, with them. Now in August of 1833, John Murdoch wonders whether he should continue his ministry and, if so, what he should do about his motherless children. This brings us to section 99. Behold, thus saith the Lord unto my servant, John Murdoch, Thou art called to go into the eastern countries, from house to house, from village to village, and from city to city, to proclaim mine everlasting gospel unto the inhabitants thereof, in the midst of persecution and wickedness. John Murdoch was one of the Lord's best missionaries, and since it was desperately necessary to strengthen the kingdom, missionary work was a top priority. Consequently, the Lord did not release John Murdoch from the ministry, but instructed him to labor in the eastern states. It was to be an intensive one-on-one -on -one missionary endeavor. He was to go from house to house, village to village, and city to city. The Lord was well aware that he would be on a somewhat thankless assignment because many would turn him away. The Lord also realized that John would be doing a missionary work in the midst of wicked people who would persecute him. And who receiveth you receiveth me, and you shall have power to declare my word in the demonstration of my Holy Spirit. John was promised that in his missionary endeavors he would have the benefit of the Holy Spirit, which would add power and persuasion to the things that he taught. And who receiveth you as a little child receiveth my kingdom? And blessed are they, for they shall obtain mercy. John was promised a certain amount of success on this mission, and the Lord said that those who received the gospel would receive the Lord's merciful blessings. And whoso rejecteth you shall be rejected of my father and his house. And you shall cleanse your feet in the secret places by the way, for a testimony against them. And those who rejected John's testimony would reap a harvest of damnation. In those cases, John was told to perform the ordinance of washing of the feet to damn them. And behold, and lo, I come quickly to judgment to convince all of their ungodly deeds which they have committed against me, as it is written of me in the volume of the book. 
The Lord says he will be coming sooner than many people suspect, and he will administer his judgment against the wicked. Apparently, John, like most of the saints, was anxious to go to Zion and Missouri with his family. But the Lord said, And now verily I say unto you, that it is not expedient that you should go until your children are provided for, and sent up kindly unto the bishop of Zion. Now this would imply that even before John began this new missionary work, he should be sure that his motherless children should be sent to the bishop in Zion, where they can be adequately provided for until he returned. And after a few years, if thou desirest of me, thou mayest go up also unto the goodly land to possess thine inheritance. No doubt this was to put John's mind at rest concerning his inheritance in Zion. The Lord assured him that his ultimate inheritance in Zion would be provided if he would just faithfully perform his much-needed missionary labors for the present. Otherwise thou shalt continue proclaiming my gospel until thou be taken. Amen. In fact, regardless of circumstances, the Lord urged John to continue his wonderfully successful mission of proclaiming the gospel as long as he lived. Section 100 Introduction All during August and September of 1833, Joseph Smith labored with his brother Hiram to get the building of the Kirtland Temple underway and also to organize the new Kirtland stake. However, in late September, a relatively new convert arrived in Kirtland named Freeman Nickerson. He was a veteran of the War of 1812 and had been baptized at Dayton, New York, in April 1833. He gradually made his way over to Kirtland, where he could meet the prophet. After the two men became acquainted, Joseph felt inspired to take Sidney Rigdon and go on a mission to Perrysburg, which was the home of Freeman Nickerson and was located in western New York, about 40 miles south of Buffalo. Freeman Nickerson was returning to his home in a carriage, and he invited Joseph and Sidney Rigdon to ride back with him and they arrived in Perrysburg October the 12th, 1833. Both Joseph and Sidney were concerned about their families, and on the day of their arrival in Perrysburg, Joseph received the following revelation. And here is the text of section 100. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my friends, Sidney and Joseph, your families are well, they are in mine hands, and I will do with them as seemeth me good, for in me there is all power. The Lord said their families were doing well, and they would be in the Savior's care while they were away on their mission. Therefore follow me, and listen to the counsel which I shall give unto you. This verse was to reassure the Lord's servants that they would succeed on their mission as long as they listened to the Lord's counsel as they went along. Behold, and lo, I have much people in this place, in the regions round about, and an effectual door shall be opened in the regions round about in this eastern land. First and foremost, they are to concentrate on the preaching of the gospel in this vicinity, where the Lord knew there were many who would want to hear the gospel and who would respond to their message. 
Therefore I, the Lord, have suffered you to come unto this place. For thus it was expedient in me for the salvation of souls. The Lord also wanted Joseph and Sidney to know that their coming to Perrysburg was no accident, nor was it fortuitous that Joseph and Sidney had been inspired to come to Perrysburg to preach the gospel. Therefore verily I say unto you, Lift up your voices unto this people. Speak the thoughts that I shall put into your hearts, and you shall not be confounded before men. For it shall be given you in the very hour, yea, in the very moment, what ye shall say. In order to convert the people, the Lord told these two leaders of the church to teach the very thoughts that were planted in their hearts by the Spirit of the Lord. No matter who challenged them, they were not to be fearful, for the Spirit would not allow them to be confounded. But a commandment I give unto you, that ye shall declare whatsoever thing ye declare in my name, in solemnity of heart, in the spirit of meekness, in all things. And I give unto you this promise, that inasmuch as ye do this, the Holy Ghost shall be shed forth in bearing record unto all things whatsoever ye shall say. It is believed that these two verses were addressed primarily to Sidney Rigdon, he was a professionally trained preacher and one of the founders of the Campbellite Church. As the drama of the Restoration unfolds, we will see that Sidney was sometimes a little over self-confident. Therefore, the Lord emphasized the need for him to be meek and let the Spirit take the lead. These qualities were already part of the very nature of Joseph Smith, so that is why we are inclined to believe that this counsel was intended primarily for Sidney Rigdon. And it is expedient in me that you, my servant Sidney, should be a spokesman unto this people. Yea, verily, I will ordain you unto this calling, even to be a spokesman unto my servant Joseph. At the same time, the Lord knew how capable Sidney was in explaining the Bible and setting forth the principles of the gospel as they were being revealed to Joseph Smith. He therefore designated Sidney to be the formal spokesman for the prophet so that Joseph could devote his time to bearing his testimony to the truthfulness of the many things Sidney would proclaim. In 2 Nephi chapter 3, verse 18, we learn that around 1700 B.C., the Lord told Joseph, who was sold into Egypt, that one of his descendants would rise up in the latter days to restore the gospel. In verse 15 of that chapter, he said that his name would be Joseph, and he would have a spokesman like Moses of old. However, Moses needed a spokesman because he had an impediment of speech. This was not the case with Joseph Smith. But the Lord did count it an advantage at this stage of the church's early development to have a, quote, trail breaker, unquote, such as the well-known Sidney Rigdon, to speak up for him and thereby serve as his spokesman. However, to have this honor bestowed upon Sidney had a tendency to go to his head. In fact, by 1841, the Lord threatened to remove Sidney from his calling as a spokesman for Joseph, because of his pride and arrogant spirit. That's in Doctrine and Covenants 124, verse 104. 
Meanwhile, however, beginning in 1833, Sidney was given this honor of being Joseph's spokesman. He found that this calling not only gave him the power to bear witness of Joseph's integrity as a true prophet, but opened Sidney's mind to explain new revelations the Lord would give Joseph from time to time. It turned out that Sidney would also be given insight into the scriptures which prophesied of the restoration of the gospel and point out scriptures that prophesied that there would be a raising up of God's prophet in the latter days. And I will give unto him power to be mighty in testimony. And I will give unto thee power to be mighty in expounding all scriptures, that thou mayest be a spokesman unto him, and he shall be a revelator unto thee, that thou mayest know the certainty of all things pertaining to the things of my kingdom on the earth. Therefore continue your journey, and let your hearts rejoice. For behold, and lo, I am with you even unto the end. With these assurances the Lord told Joseph and Sidney to proceed on their mission, and rejoice in the work they had been called to perform. Next to his family, Joseph's greatest concern was for the welfare of the saints in Missouri. He knew they were working on a timeline— and that unless they raised up a temple to the Lord in a very short time allowed by the mob, the whole fabric of Zion would begin to come unraveled. Joseph didn't know it, but the energetic zeal for the temple in Kirtland was not being duplicated by the saints in Zion. As the Lord later indicated in section 101, they were not prayerful in seeking God's help in raising up the temple in Zion, the Lord could see what was happening, and therefore said to Joseph, And now I give unto you a word concerning Zion. Zion shall be redeemed, although she is chastened for a little season. There was a broad hint that Zion was destined for some severe trials and tribulations. Thy brethren, my servants Orson Hyde and John Gould, are in my hands, and inasmuch as they keep my commandments, they shall be saved. When Joseph had learned of the most recent anger of the mobs in Zion, he had sent Orson Hyde and John Gould back to Jackson County with a message from the First Presidency to petition the governor for protection. In this verse, the Lord says that these two messengers are safe and will remain so as long as they are obedient to the Lord. The next three verses are to prepare Joseph for what is about to happen in Zion. Therefore let your hearts be comforted, for all things shall work together for good to them that walk uprightly, and to the sanctification of the church. For I will raise up unto myself a pure people that will serve me in righteousness, and all that call upon the name of the Lord and keep his commandments shall be saved. Even so. Amen. The Lord has already said that Zion will be chastened for a season, but looking ahead for several generations, the Lord knows that eventually she will be redeemed. No matter how much tragic news Joseph receives concerning Zion, he is promised the following. First, that eventually everything will work together for the sanctification of the church. Secondly, that in due time God will raise up a pure people to redeem Zion. And number three, 
that no matter what happens to the wicked in Zion, the righteous saints who keep the commandments of the Lord shall be saved. Section 101, Introduction During their brief mission to western New York and Canada, Joseph and Sidney had their greatest success at Mount Pleasant in Canada, where Joseph baptized twelve in one day and four more the next. They then ordained Freeman A. Nickerson an elder to organize the branches and carry on the work. Joseph felt the need to return home. He reached Buffalo on November the 1st and arrived in Kirtland on November the 4th. Before long, he began getting reports from Missouri that forewarned him of a threatening disaster. Joseph knew that the mob made its first demands on the saints in Jackson County, clear back on July 20, 1833. Then on July 22nd, the mob burned down the buildings where the church printing press was located and scattered the goods of the Gilbert and Whitney store into the street. Bishop Edward Partridge and Charles Allen were stripped and then tarred and feathered. The mob leaders then declared an armistice and told the church leaders the Mormons had until the first of the year to dispose of their property and get out of Jackson County. That gave them a period of approximately six months before the mob said they would give them more trouble. Then came the 97th section commanding the saints in Zion to build a temple similar to the one in Kirtland. With nearly six months to fulfill this commandment, Joseph assumed the saints would use lumber instead of stone and get it completed on time. The problem was with the saints themselves. They did not rally their forces and commence the temple project. They did nothing. Finally, after three months had passed away, the period of peace suddenly ended. The mob began violating their promise of non-hostility. On October the 31st, 1833, a mob of 40 to 50 men attacked a Mormon community west of the Big Blue River. Ten homes were destroyed, and many of the men were brutally beaten while their terrified families fled into the woods. The next day, on November the 1st, there was a mob attack on a settlement of saints about 14 miles from Independence. The same night, a number of homes which belonged to the saints were destroyed at Independence itself, and once more the store of Gilbert and Whitney was raided and vandalized. Attempts were made to get protection from the local officials, but nearly all of them turned out to be members of the mob. On November the 4th, a large mob attacked the saints settled along the Big Blue River. A battle ensued, and two of the mob were killed as well as one of the Mormons. The next several weeks were chaotic turmoil. More and more of the saints camped on the banks of the Missouri River, waiting to be ferried across to one of the counties where the people were more sympathetic to the predicament of the Mormons. Meanwhile, some of the men stood up to the mob and tried to make a stand, but they were tricked into giving up their arms on the promise that the mob would give up theirs. However, after being disarmed, the Mormons found their guns being distributed among the mob, so they were virtually helpless. They also ended up gathering their families and moving down to the river ferry. By December the 1st, all of the saints in Jackson County had been evicted and their homes either destroyed or expropriated. On December the 10th, Joseph wrote a letter to the saints in Missouri 
And in it, he said there were two things the Lord would not tell him. One was the reason the saints were evicted from Jackson County, and second, how the Lord eventually intended to redeem Zion so she could perform her prophetic destiny. By December 16, 1833, Joseph Smith decided to approach the Lord directly with these questions. Here is the revelation he received. This is the text now of section 101. Verily I say unto you concerning your brethren who have been afflicted and persecuted and cast out from the land of their inheritance, I, the Lord, have suffered the affliction to come upon them wherewith they have been afflicted in consequence of their transgressions. As Joseph probably suspected, the Lord allowed them to be driven out of Jackson County because they had not obeyed his commandments, the most important of which was in section 97. They made no attempt to build a temple and thereby lost all of the wonderful promises the Lord had made in that section. Yet I will own them, and they shall be mine in that day when I shall come to make up my jewels. Therefore they must needs be chastened and tried, even as Abraham, who was commanded to offer up his only son, for all those who will not endure chastening but deny me, cannot be sanctified. The Lord already knew what suffering and privations the whole church would have to endure during the next few years. Nevertheless, those who endured the trials and chastening would be saved, which means that they would inherit the New Jerusalem when it was finally built in Jackson County. However, at no time does the Lord indicate exactly when this will occur or how it will be accomplished. Nevertheless, at this point in time, he is perfectly willing to tell them why they were driven out of the sacred region where the New Jerusalem will one day stand. He said, Behold, I say unto you, there were jarrings and contentions and envyings and strifes and lustful and covetous desires among them. Therefore by these things they polluted their inheritances. They were slow to hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God. Therefore the Lord their God is slow to hearken unto their prayers, to answer them in the day of their trouble, in the day of their peace, they esteemed lightly my counsel, but in the day of their trouble of necessity they feel after me. As we've just mentioned, for three months the saints in Jackson County made no attempt to start their temple, nor did they pray to the Lord to open the way so that they could begin. However, when the mobs began to destroy their homes and persecute them, they pleaded with the Lord, but he ignored them. He never intervened or gave them the miraculous blessings he had promised in section 97. He simply stood aside and let them suffer the consequences of their indolence. And he had warned them in section 97 that this is exactly what would happen if they failed to obey his command and undertake to build a temple. Verily I say unto you, notwithstanding their sins, my bowels are filled with compassion towards them. I will not utterly cast them off. And in the day of wrath, I will remember mercy. But their situation wasn't helpless unless their apostasy and rebellion continued to merit wrath rather than blessings. 
And as always, Jesus holds out his promise of mercy if they but put their houses in order. As it turned out, some did, some didn't. I have sworn, and the decree hath gone forth by a former commandment, which I have given unto you, that I would let fall the sword of mine indignation in behalf of my people. And even as I have said, it shall come to pass. Mine indignation is soon to be poured out without measure upon all nations, and this will I do when the cup of their iniquity is full. But here the Lord assures the people that the wicked mob who had made them homeless refugees will suffer for their cruel murderous actions in ways they never would have dreamed. It will begin with the civil war and then spread its abominations of desolations throughout the world. And in that day, all who are found upon the watchtower, or in other words, all mine Israel, shall be saved. Yet the Lord will intervene on behalf of his chosen people who have remained true to the covenants of Israel. All these will be saved. And they that have been scattered shall be gathered. And all they who have mourned shall be comforted. And all they who have given their lives for my name shall be crowned. These are the rewards of righteousness which the chosen Israelites will inherit if they will remain faithful. Therefore let your hearts be comforted concerning Zion, for all flesh is in mine hands. Be still and know that I am God. Zion shall not be moved out of her place, notwithstanding her children are scattered. The Lord knows the saints are brokenhearted because they had such high hopes concerning the glorious Zion they thought they were going to build. At the moment all their dreams seem to have been obliterated and lost forever. They that remain and are pure in heart shall return and come to their inheritances, they and their children with songs of everlasting joy to build up the waste places of Zion and all these things that the prophets might be fulfilled. Now the Lord talks about those who, quote, remain, unquote. He is referring to the righteous remnant or descendants who are pure in heart and will someday come back to build up the desolated places and claim their inheritance. Nothing the prophets have said about the ultimate glory of Zion will remain unfulfilled. And behold, there is none other place appointed than that which I have appointed. Neither shall there be any other place appointed than that which I have appointed for the work of the gathering of my saints. In this verse we find the radiant hope of Israel even to this day. The saints will go back to Jackson County at some future time and build a new Jerusalem. No matter what happens to corrupt this region, it will someday be completely cleansed and occupied by the saints. Until the day cometh, when there is found no more room for them. And then I have other places which I will appoint unto them, and they shall be called stakes, for the curtains are the strength of Zion. Behold, it is my will that all they who call on my name and worship me according to mine everlasting gospel should gather together and stand in holy places, Meanwhile, the task of the faithful saints will be to live the gospel principles and gather together in wards and stakes 
which are the Lord's, quote, holy places, unquote. And prepare for the revelation which is to come, when the veil of the covering of my temple in my tabernacle which hideth the earth shall be taken off, and all flesh shall see me together. And every corruptible thing, both of man or of the beasts of the field or of the fowls of the heavens or of the fish of the sea that dwells upon all the face of the earth shall be consumed. By this means the members of the church will be prepared for the glorious revelation when the veil over the earth will be swept away so that all mankind will not only see the Lord but also the habitation of his temple and tabernacle in heaven. Of course, this will not occur until the wicked have been cleansed from the earth by fire, so that all flesh that remains will see him together. And also that of element shall melt with fervent heat, and all things shall become new, that my knowledge and glory may dwell upon all the earth. The quickening of the earth passes through two stages. The first one is at the beginning of the millennium when the earth is transfigured and prepared for its thousand years of the Savior's reign on earth. The second is when the earth is glorified at the end of the millennium and it becomes the eternal residence of Jesus Christ along with those who attain the celestial glory. But Jesus wanted to talk to them about the millennium first. And in that day the enmity of man and the enmity of beasts, yea, the enmity of all flesh, shall cease from before my face. This means there will be no war, no armies, no navies, no police, no jails. And this will be a time of maximum learning and include both spiritual and temporal knowledge. The Lord says, And in that day whatsoever any man shall ask, it shall be given unto him. And there will be no satanical seductions to destroy men's souls. And in that day, Satan shall not have power to tempt any man. And there shall be no sorrow, because there is no death. In that day, an infant shall not die until he is old, and his life shall be as the age of a tree. And when he dies, he shall not sleep, that is to say, in the earth but shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and shall be caught up, and his rest shall be glorious. This would imply that there will be no need for doctors, hospitals, cemeteries, or morticians. When a person reaches his full age of a tree, let us say about 70, he will probably be taken into the temple and changed in the twinkling of an eye to a glorious resurrected being. Yea, verily I say unto you, In that day when the Lord shall come, he shall reveal all things. It is impossible to imagine the full implications of this verse. For example, Things which have passed, and hidden things which no man knew, things of the earth by which it was made, and the purpose and the end thereof. There is nothing we ever wanted to know that will not be revealed. All it requires is a desire to want to know and to actually ask for the knowledge we seek. Things most precious, things that are above and things that are beneath, things that are in the earth and upon the earth and in heaven. This seems to include all truth, 
things as they are, things as they were, and things as they will be in the future. And all they who suffer persecution for my name and endure in faith, though they are called to lay down their lives for my sake, yet shall they partake of all this glory. Wherefore, fear not even unto death, for in this world your joy is not full, but in me your joy is full. So often it seems as though death is the end of everything, but the Lord assures us that nothing is lost. In the world of eternity we receive joy and self-realization to the ultimate dimension. Therefore, care not for the body, neither the life of the body, but care for the soul and for the life of the soul, and seek the face of the Lord always, that in patience ye may possess your souls, and ye shall have eternal life. As we watch our bodies suffer the ravages of time, we cannot help but feel that we are being robbed of our youth, beauty, and vitality. But the Lord says that we will receive the total fulfillment of life, joyful satisfaction, and happiness. When men are called unto mine everlasting gospel and covenant with an everlasting covenant, they are accounted as the salt of the earth and the savor of men. They are called to be the savor of men. Therefore, if that salt of the earth lose its savor, behold, it is thenceforth good for nothing, only to be cast out and trodden under the feet of men. Here the Lord gives us his definition of the salt of the earth in terms of perfected human beings. Now the Lord is going to respond to the question of why the saints were driven out of Jackson County. Behold, here is wisdom concerning the children of Zion, even many, but not all. They were found transgressors, therefore they must needs be chastened. Notice that the Lord is very appreciative of those who were faithful. It is those that were not faithful who must be chastened. He that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that abaseth himself shall be exalted. One of Satan's most destructive instruments of human character is pride. In Jackson County, there were both leaders and followers who were too proud to heed the command of the Lord and hastily build a temple. They used the most flimsy excuses to avoid the task and thereby missed the blessing and reaped the whirlwind. Now the Lord illustrates the problem of the saints in Zion. This will take us clear over to verse 54. And now I will show unto you a parable, that you may know my will concerning the redemption of Zion. A certain nobleman had a spot of land very choice, and he said unto his servants, Go ye unto my vineyard, even upon this very choice piece of land, and plant twelve olive trees and set watchmen round about them, and build a tower, that one may overlook the land round about to be a watchman upon the tower, that mine olive trees may not be broken down when the enemy shall come to spoil and take upon themselves the fruit of my vineyard. Now the servants of the noblemen went and did as their Lord commanded them, and planted the olive trees, and built a hedge round about, and set watchmen, and began to build a tower. 
And while they were yet laying the foundation, they began to say among themselves, And what need hath my Lord of this tower? And consulted for a long time, saying among themselves, What need hath my Lord of this tower, seeing this is a time of peace? Might not this money be given to the exchangers? For there is no need of these things. And while they were at variance one with another, they became very slothful, and they hearkened not unto the commandments of their Lord. And the enemy came by night, and broke down the hedge. And the servants of the nobleman arose, and were affrighted, and fled. And the enemy destroyed their works, and broke down the olive trees. Now behold, the nobleman, the lord of the vineyard, called upon his servants, and said unto them, Why? What is the cause of this great evil? Ought ye not to have done even as I commanded you? And after ye had planted the vineyard, and built the hedge round about, and set watchmen upon the walls thereof, built the tower also, and set a watchman upon the tower, and watched for my vineyard, and not have fallen asleep, lest the enemy should come upon you. And behold, the watchman upon the tower would have seen the enemy while he was yet afar off. And then ye could have made ready and kept the enemy from breaking down the hedge thereof, and saved my vineyard from the hands of the destroyer. We have to remember that Jesus recited this parable to illustrate what would happen to many of his servants in Zion who were transgressors. They had fallen asleep and allowed the vineyard in Zion to be destroyed. Now the Lord of the vineyard aspires to redeem his vineyard. Here is what he intends to do. And the Lord of the vineyard said unto one of his servants, Go and gather together the residue of my servants, and take all the strength of mine house, which are my warriors, my young men, and they that are of middle age also among all my servants, who are the strength of mine house, save those only whom I have appointed to tarry. And go ye straightway unto the land of my vineyard, and redeem my vineyard, for it is mine. I have bought it with money. He not only wants to reap a harvest from his vineyard, but avenge himself on his enemies. He says, Therefore get ye straightway unto my land, break down the walls of mine enemies, throw down their tower, and scatter their watchmen. And inasmuch as they gather together against you, avenge me of mine enemies, that by and by I may come with the residue of mine house, and possess the land. It is typical of the servants of the Lord to listen to the predictions of these things which the Lord is proposing to do, and then they immediately inquire just as this servant did. And the servant said unto his Lord, When shall these things be? It is interesting how the Lord responded. And he said unto his servant, When I will, go ye straightway and do all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and this shall be my seal and blessing upon you, a faithful and wise steward in the midst of mine house, a ruler in my kingdom. By obeying the Lord and following his commandments, the faithful servant is assured that he will be acclaimed as a wise steward in the Lord's kingdom. And his servant went straightway and did all things whatsoever his Lord commanded him. And after many days, all things were fulfilled. 
This steward did as the Lord commanded, and after many days the Lord fulfilled all his promises. Now the Lord wants to give some guidelines to all the congregation of the churches in Missouri. Again, verily I say unto you, I will show unto you wisdom in me concerning all the churches, inasmuch as they are willing to be guided in a right and proper way for their salvation. Just because the saints in Jackson County have been driven from their homes and evicted from the county, there are certain things that must be continued. The saints must build up the holy places, and this is interpreted to mean the gathering and strengthening of the wards and stakes. And so he says, That the work of the gathering together of my saints may continue, that I may build them up unto my name upon holy places, for the time of harvest is come, and my word must needs be fulfilled. The gathering process will be the fulfillment of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Those who answered the gospel call are the wheat in this parable. Therefore, I must gather together my people according to the parable of the wheat and the tares, that the wheat may be secured in the garners to possess eternal life and be crowned with celestial glory when I shall come in the kingdom of my Father to reward every man according as his work shall be. The wicked Gentiles, on the other hand, are the tares, and in due process of time they will be destroyed. While the tares shall be bound in bundles and their bands made strong, that they may be burned with unquenchable fire. The Lord says his general instructions are for, quote, all the churches, unquote, but as we shall see, the emphasis is on the churches in Missouri. Therefore a commandment I give unto all the churches, that they shall continue to gather together unto the places which I have appointed. The Lord knows that when the call goes out to the members of the church to gather, they tend to assemble in frantic haste, he therefore says. Nevertheless, as I have said unto you in a former commandment, let not your gathering be in haste, nor by flight, but let all things be prepared before you. And in order that all things be prepared before you, observe the commandment which I have given concerning these things. There are some specific commandments which the Lord needs to have in place if the Missouri saints are to fulfill their assignment. They must use the law of consecration to rapidly expand the base of operation of the church in Missouri. He says, Which saith or teacheth, to purchase all the lands with money, which can be purchased for money, in the region round about the land which I have appointed to be the land of Zion, for the beginning of the gathering of my saints, all the land which can be purchased in Jackson County and the counties round about, and leave the residue in mine hand. Notice that even though the saints have lost their homes and been evicted from Jackson County, the Lord counsels them to go ahead and acquire as much land as possible in Jackson County and the surrounding counties. Of course, they can't acquire everything, but they are not to worry about the residue. It can be left in the hands of the Lord. Now verily I say unto you, let all the churches gather together all their monies, let these things be done in their time, but not in haste, and observe to have all things prepared before you. And let honorable men be appointed even wise men, and send them to purchase these lands. 
The Lord knows that many well-to-do people are beginning to enter the church in the East, he says. And the churches in the Eastern countries, when they are built up, if they will hearken unto this counsel, they may buy lands and gather together upon them, and in this way they may establish Zion. There is even now already in store sufficient, yea, even an abundance, to redeem Zion, and establish her waste places, no more to be thrown down, were the churches who call themselves after my name willing to hearken to my voice. Of course, the saints who have been driven from their homes and are having a difficult time existing have a different calling. The Lord says, And again I say unto you, those who have been scattered by their enemies, it is my will that they should continue to importune for redress and redemption by the hands of those who are placed as rulers and are in authority over you. The Lord knows that the saints who have been driven from their homes have suffered outrageous violations of their civil rights. Not only has their property been lost, but their lives and liberties have been threatened. These are inalienable rights, guaranteed by the Constitution, and the officers of the state of Missouri are under mandate to uphold these rights. Therefore, the Lord wants the refugee saints to go directly to these officers and petition them to perform their duties. According to the laws and constitution of the people, which I have suffered to be established and should be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh, according to just and holy principles, that every man may act in doctrine and principle pertaining to futurity, according to the moral agency which I have given unto him, that every man may be accountable for his own sins in the day of judgment. The last phrase is very significant. These officers of the state will be under the condemnation of God if they do not perform their duty. This is what it means to have, quote, inalienable rights, unquote. They are natural rights given by God and they cannot be violated without coming under the judgment of God. Of course, human beings cannot exercise their moral agency and be responsible for their own acts unless they are free. Therefore, the Lord says, Therefore, it is not right that any man should be in bondage one to another. The Lord wants it positively understood that this is the whole thrust of the United States Constitution. Men and women are born free. The Constitution makes them free. All of its principles are designed to protect their inalienable rights within the framework of freedom. It was to preserve these principles that the United States was redeemed and established by the shedding of blood. Or, as the Lord says it, And for this purpose have I established the Constitution of this land by the hands of wise men whom I raised up unto this very purpose, and redeemed the land by the shedding of blood. Now observe that the Lord outlawed slavery in verse 79, and then goes on to ratify the Constitution as it existed in 1833. This sacred document contained everything that it now includes up to the Twelfth Amendment. All of the additional amendments came later. The big question confronting the saints whose rights had been violated was simply this. How shall they proceed to have their rights protected and their property restored? 
Here is the Lord's response. Now, unto what shall I liken the children of Zion? I will liken them unto the parable of the woman and the unjust judge, for men ought always to pray and not to faint, which saith, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Thus will I liken the children of Zion, let them importune at the feet of the judge, and if he heed them not, let them importune at the feet of the governor, and if the governor heed them not, let them importune at the feet of the president. And if the president heed them not, then will the Lord arise and come forth out of his hiding place, and in his fury vex the nation. It is plain that the Lord wanted his servants to pursue the constitutional remedy from the bottom to the top, and he left no doubt what the outcome would be if all of these sworn officers of government failed to provide a remedy for those who had been wronged. Then with fury he will vex the nation. Who can study the horrors of the terrible war between the states without recognizing how completely the Lord fulfilled this prediction? But the Lord had an additional punishment for those officials who disdainfully ignored the pleas of those whose rights had been ruthlessly destroyed. Concerning them, he says, And in his hot displeasure and in his fierce anger, in his time, will cut off those wicked, unfaithful, and unjust stewards, and appoint them their portion among hypocrites and unbelievers, the Book of Mormon explains that God's punishment of the wicked consists of removing his sustaining spirit so that the sinner's spirit is left in torturous agony until he has paid for his offenses to the uttermost farthing. All of this takes place in outer darkness, where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Even in outer darkness, where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, Pray ye therefore, that their ears may be opened unto your cries, that I may be merciful unto them, that these things may not come upon them. Of course, this could only happen if they repented and took advantage of the Savior's great atonement. The Savior is urging the saints from Jackson County to pray for their oppressors, that they might be converted and forgiven. What I have said unto you must needs be that all men may be left without excuse. The Lord says he has commanded the saints to follow the tedious and extended appeal to the authorities so that none of these officials will have any alibi to excuse their wicked conduct. That wise men and rulers may hear and know that which they have never considered. When these officials discover that they must suffer God's judgment for their cruel and outrageous behavior, it will be shocking to learn what is going to happen. It will be something they had never even considered. That I may proceed to bring to pass my act, my strange act, and perform my work, my strange work, that men may discern between the righteous and the wicked, saith your God. The restoration of the gospel is God's strange and wonderful act of the latter days. 
It raises up the holy standard by which mankind discern between the righteous and the wicked. Now the Lord lays down a policy concerning the land from which the Jackson County saints have been evicted. And again I say unto you, It is contrary to my commandment and my will that my servant Sidney Gilbert should sell my storehouse, which I have appointed unto my people, into the hands of mine enemies. Already the refugee, poverty-stricken saints are being offered ridiculous sums for their property, such is the case with Sidney Gilbert, who had custody of the storehouse. Let not that which I have appointed be polluted by mine enemies, by the consent of those who call themselves after my name. The saints were forced to abandon inheritances which carried sacred obligations. For this is a very sore and grievous sin against me and against my people, in consequence of those things which I have decreed and which are soon to befall the nations. By driving the saints from dedicated land, the Gentiles have committed a monstrous offense against God. So are the Lord's policy concerning the consecrated lands that the Gentiles have appropriated or from which they have driven the rightful owners away was simply this. Therefore it is my will that my people should claim and hold claim upon that which I have appointed unto them, though they should not be permitted to dwell thereon. This restriction was a great trial to some of the refugee saints from Jackson County. Some of the leaders refused to abide by it and were excommunicated. Nevertheless, I do not say they shall not dwell thereon, for inasmuch as they bring forth fruit and works, meet for my kingdom, they shall dwell thereon. They shall build, and another shall not inherit it. They shall plant vineyards, and they shall eat the fruit thereof. Even so. Amen. Here is the Lord's promise that some day the saints or their descendants will occupy their land. In that day they shall occupy their inheritance and dwell in the houses they have built. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to read more on the Prophet Joseph Smith by W. Cleon Skousen, go to skousenlibrary.com. Look for his book titled Brother Joseph.